Welcome to The Pen and the Yad. Rabbi Michael Siegel of Anshe Emmet Synagogue in Chicago talks with author Jonathan Eig about this week's Torah portion of Shmini, The Power of Eight. What's your favorite number? Uh, I always pick number eight because um, my name starts with E-I-G. I mean, my last name is E-I-G, which is how you start spelling eight. So uh, I always try to pick eight as my as my number of, you know, Little League uniform, all that kind of stuff. It's funny. My number was seven. My eight football seven. number was 77. And so I always pick seven for some reason. So it's funny. Um, but, I, that, but you've got you've got what we would call a chazaka. You really have a right to it because you're – your name begins heading got the first three letters. That's pretty impressive. I got to say. Yeah, it, probably, it probably was eight and it got shortened at Ellis Island, you know? Oh, you think that's true? <laughs> no. <laughs> then I could just use the numeral. I could just use Jonathan eight with the numeral and uh, that'd be really, that'd be really sweet. Okay. Okay. I'm going to look forward on the cover of your next book. Yeah. I'd probably get a lot more attention for that. I think that might be good marketing. Well, I got to say, whether it's good marketing or not, it's a great segue to this week's portion because this week we read the portion of Shmini, which is actually the number eight. So this is your portion. This has got your name all over it, so to speak. And what's interesting is that if there is a number for the Torah, it's the number seven, right? So God creates the world in seven. And the Torah's interest in the creation story isn't, according to Rashi and other medieval commentators, is not to give us a blueprint of the creation, but to show what God did in seven. And that then is imposed in the calendar by the seven days of the week, which is interestingly not a natural number. It's not. It's actually not a natural demarcation of time. If you think about it, a day is a natural demarcation of time. The sun goes up, the sun goes down. Um, the moon and its relationship with the earth makes for the cycle of the moon in a month. The earth's relationship with the sun creates a year, right? And yet the number seven is imposed on the calendar. There is no natural demarcation for a week, if you think about it. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't really thought about it that way. So when we think about a week... From the Jewish perspective, we're imposing the number seven on time to make sure that we are conscious of the creation of the number seven. And so the number seven permeates the entire Torah and, by the way, Jewish life. We have Shabbat on the seventh day. We say seven blessings in the Amida on Shabbat. We say seven blessings over a bride and groom under the chuppah, the number seven permeates. But what's interesting is that when the tabernacle, when this indwelling place, the mishkan, the indwelling place of God is dedicated uh, by Moses and Aaron and the children of Israel, it's not the number seven, but it is the number that the world associates with Jonathan I. It's the number eight. (laughs) It's the number eight that's out there. So what do we do with that? It's an interesting idea. Why the number eight and not the number seven? Because sometimes you just have to turn it up from seven. It's like a Spinal Tap, the, uh, the, the, the great rock documentary. Sometimes you have to turn it to 11. You just have to turn it up. Sometimes 10 isn't enough. You know, the world, the world has lost something not having Jonathan Igg as a Torah scholar. <laughs> it's not too late. Your, 
because you're <laughs> wasting yourself on these books when you could be helping us bring popular culture to Torah. Right? The world <laughs> happy to, to, happy to do time. my bit. But I think you're really on to something. This idea of turning it, turning the amplifier to a number that sort of doesn't even exist on the dial, right? What's or it's there. Here, what the Torah is trying to say is that the this Mishkan is more than just a structure, but it is the nexus between heaven and earth. And so it is this worldly, number seven, the way to symbolize something beyond this world is the number eight, is the number eight. I think that's just a really powerful idea that there are moments when we move from seven to eight that we have a glimpse of something beyond us. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, we're basically just deciding that we need to make this more special. We need to make it um, more spiritual, and we need to exalt it. So we we give it a plus one, right? Well, but think about your own life. There are moments that stick out where you, I'm assuming this to be true, that you tasted something beyond, something that you were, in a sense, I mean, we, well, sometimes we talk, refer to it as, uh, you know, a moment outside of your body. You're engaged with something beyond yourself. Do you have you ever had moments like that? Oh, wow. As you put me on the spot, I did not see that question coming. But absolutely. I mean, I feel like there are, there are spiritual moments and sometimes it's something mundane um, where you're just struck by the beauty of, you know, the rain on your windshield. And other times it's mm-hmm, something, mm-hmm. you know, really profound, like, you know, um, listening to Ella Fitzgerald out in an outdoor concert in Monterey. I mean, you just feel like the world could not get any more beautiful right now. And you, you definitely feel like you um, are appreciating it in a way that's bigger, even though it, you've decided that this is something special, that you're taking something mundane and appreciating it in a bigger way. Or there are family moments, right? The birth oh, of a absolutely. child, you know, yeah. looking, up, looking up the aisle and seeing your bride standing there, just being overtaken. There's this kind of otherworldly moment. What I think is so powerful about it is that Judaism is, in a sense, implanting this idea and making it part of our consciousness now. What I'm suggesting is that by focusing on this nexus between seven and eight, this world and the world beyond, this world which is potentially complete, right? that's the whole idea of the number seven, it's, the, it's potential completion, God creates human beings to be in partnership with God, not to celebrate a perfected creation, but actually to complete the creation. Human being, the job of human beings is to work with God to fulfill the creation, whereas the number seven is the number of potential completion. The number eight is the number of wholeness, of completion. You know, it's interesting that the number eight is also the kind of the symbolic idea of infinity. It's totally whole in every way and kind of a taste of perfection. And so what does it mean to us to be able to dream and feel like the world as it could be is right there? It's right beyond where we are. It's actually attainable. We could actually get there. What does that do for us? What is the power of making a dream part of your reality on a regular basis. What does that do for us, you think? Well, I think it um, allows us to think beyond ourselves. It allows us to think that we have this very um, limited window in which we get to see the world and that 
it's much bigger than us and that we can think more grandly and more spiritually. I quoted Spinal Tap. I'll try to class it up a little bit and I'll, I'll quote Melville the next time. You know, he said something about how um, we have like, the matter of life and death backwards, that it's our shadow that's our true substance, that the life we cast to the before and after is much bigger than the actual life, that our being is more than just what we see and feel. And I think that's maybe what you're getting at here, that this ability to see beyond ourselves and to dream is not just in our heads. It's part of the world all around us. I'm getting a little mumbo jumbo here, but maybe you can, you can save me. Well, I don't think it's mumbo jumbo. I think we call it just speaking like rabbis, but... <laughs> I think you're you're 100% right. Our resonance is greater than we are. There's something beyond us. We're not just living in this narrow space, but there's just something larger right beyond us. I think that's, in a way, why people are so attracted to fantasy literature, right? Because we have this sense of something beyond. This can't be everything. And in a way, our world, because we are, you know, we're 24 hours, seven days a week, news cycles, I think we're always so focused on our limitations as human beings that we don't spend enough time thinking about the grandeur of the human experience. We don't think about that wondrous nature or what we call the Selah Elohim in Judaism, the fact that there is an image of God within us, that we have the potential to span this world and the next world, we can actually envision it. We're the only being in this world that has that ability. And the question is, A, what do we do with it? And B, what does it do for us? We can envision something that's whole and not continually in process. Yeah, and I think that's a very satisfying notion. And it's such a big part of why religion satisfies. It makes us feel like we're bigger than ourselves. You know, different religions have different views on the afterlife. But the idea that um, we're part of something bigger than ourselves really makes the, the issue of the afterlife redundant, I think, because we're part of a bigger universe. We're part of God's order. Our bodies are just a small part of that. So in a way, you think about the role of religious institutions. The black community wouldn't be the black community without the black church, right? And so it goes, because in inside these institutions, up until the present day, I mean, it's amazing to think that we've been outside of the synagogue for a year now. Yeah. But this notion that you could come together and engage in community, right, in a way that you might not engage outside of these doors, or at least taste it and see its potential and its power. Yeah, and to know that your prayers are are united with the same prayers that, you know, your ancestors recited and that they're being lofted together as a group, that we're praying together for one purpose. I just think it's this idea that we're dreaming together and the dreams that we're dreaming are not all that different than the dreams that our grandparents dreamt and their grandparents dreamt, you know. In other words, we're part of this visioning moment. We're standing in seven but we're really on the precipice of eight. And I think that that is something that is so important today, to be able to dream, to believe, to get beyond our cynicism for just a little while and say, you know what, it is possible. I remember as a kid, I was a teenager, and I said to one of my uncles, you know, 
all you need is love, right? <laughs> so in that moment, I said, that's what the world needs. And he sort of laughed at me and kind of lectured me about the real world and the way it really is and that things are never going to change. And he embarrassed me. I mean, I, I just want to say that, and that wasn't the only time. But I felt somewhat ashamed because I was so naive, which was, I think, his goal. And I think back to that, and I think that when our kids or our students come and they have these ideas about what can be, rather than telling them about the real world or why don't you grow up and take a look at what the world looks like, instead, I think we should be encouraging them to dream, to move from seven to eight, because that's exactly what the Torah is trying to do. That's what the prayer book is trying to do. And I think that that would be a gift to the Jewish people and ultimately to the world. And never more so than now when we're, we're stuck in our houses trying to avoid a plague and just trying to stay warm. We need that community. We need that sense that we're going to be in this together and that we can love and get through this. Thanks, Jonathan. <laughs>